Thanks for tuning in to the School Crisis Podcast. I'm Dr. Gabriel Lomas, Professor of Counseling at Western Connecticut State University in Danbury, Connecticut. The purpose of the podcast is to share insights from school crisis and trauma experts. And now our episode. So on today's podcast, I've got with me Dr. Bruce Perry. Dr. Perry is a senior fellow with the Child Trauma Academy, a nonprofit organization based out of Houston, Texas, and he's an adjunct professor with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago. Um, he's a clinician, a researcher, and he's worked with many different governments and, and high-profile incidents, including uh, the Branch Davidian siege at Waco, Hurricane Katrina, and uh, most recently the Sandy Hook um, elementary school shootings in 2012. So Dr. Perry is a native of Bismarck, North Dakota, did his undergraduate work at Stanford University and Amherst College. He attended medical and graduate school at Northwestern University, receiving both an MD and a PhD, and has completed his residency in general psychiatry at Yale School of Medicine and a, and a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at the University of Chicago. So Dr. Perry, thank you for joining me today. I'm really thrilled to have you here because your, your reputation in the field of child trauma is is pretty amazing. I've always I've been a fan for many years. Thank you. Uh, it's, I, uh, I, I, oddly enough, I think I was at your university just a week ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I uh, was able to, I was at a conference and you have a beautiful new venue that sort of, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's a performing arts. It's really, really mm-hmm. nice. Yeah, we have a, a pretty amazing um, uh, talent here when it comes to the visual and performing arts, and they've uh, built a nice center for it. What I'd like to do is kind of tell a little bit about the background um, of the podcast that we've created, and then maybe we'd start with some discussion about child trauma. For me, I, wor- I used to work in... in schools many years ago, and I still do today to a degree as a consultant, but um, I was in Texas, and, and actually I was there in Houston for a while, in suburban Houston, in Fort Bend County, and uh, during that time period, I had pretty pretty amazing training, and at the time, I didn't realize the gift I had been given, and then I continued to work as a contractor for Child Protective Services, and um, I did that for about 10 years, and then I, I moved up to this area, and a couple of years after I moved here, uh, the shootings occurred, and um, I was looking for a way to help to you know, the, for the university to support the schools, and uh, we created a regional crisis team. So we've trained a significant number of people to be prepared to respond to crises. And then part of getting the message out to improve um, school-based mental health is to, is to create this podcast. So that's why I've, I've been reaching out to experts in the field you know, to talk a little bit about, from your perspective, from your training and your, your clinical experience, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what can we learn from um, from your experience. So thank you for joining me today. I'm thrilled to kind of pick your brain a little bit and to gain your insight today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. We, um, we have had a number of projects that are focused uh, in the schools. Some of them are, were uh, relatively short-lived, kind of a, a more of a partnership with a different school, a school district, for example. Um, 
and every time we've done that, we've learned a little bit more. And uh, but over the years, what we recognized was that the number of children in any given classroom who have been exposed to some kind of a significant traumatic event is is extremely high. And uh, you know, I think most of the people who are listening probably uh, are familiar with the ACE studies and adverse childhood experience studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if you're not, it's pretty easy to get up to speed on that pretty quickly. If you just go online and type in ACE study, you'll get a number of links that you can pretty quickly learn more about the, uh, that work. But the bottom line is that if you take a number of common adversities, you know, cha- developmental challenges that have the pretty high potential to be traumatic for a child, and then you look at how many children in any given classroom are experiencing or have experienced those events, you come up with very high rates of exposure to significant, significantly stressful and distressful and maybe even traumatic experiences in a mainstream classroom. So um, that you know, in a recent uh, survey in the state of Washington, they found that uh, one-third of the children in the typical high school classroom uh, had four or more adverse childhood experiences. And that's uh, sort of a cutoff or a threshold for something like a 90% probability that somebody who's had that many adversities is going to have uh, need for mental health help. And of course, it, I, I'm sure you, you run into this all the time, that the, the, the experience of an educator, today's teacher, already feels overwhelmed with the academic burdens that are uh, being put on them. And now having sort of the emotional and behavioral challenges that kids are bringing into the classroom, Really, it's a it's tough being a teacher in today's mm-hmm. world. I think. Yeah, I mean, what so, you're talking about is kind of a systemic crisis. And initially, I was kind of thinking about acute crisis, but that's a that's certainly a significant you know um, 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 issue to to deal with. That I think our schools are faced with today. You know, how do you handle that systemic crisis? These students that are coming to school who are already stressed out and who are already perhaps traumatized and uh, and, and how, what kind of services do we offer and how much of that do we offer as a school? Right. And, and what, what we know about how children deal with capital T trauma, you know, like a big, you know, like a major crisis in a, in a school, let's say a school shooting, um, is significantly influenced by what has happened in their own developmental past. So the children who are most vulnerable to have mental health challenges in the midst of and right on the heels of a school-based traumatic event will be the kids that have a history of exposure to previous trauma, kids that have pre-existing mental health problems, kids that have, you know, sort of vulnerable and fragile family situations and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that we think is very important in 
creating sort of an overall school-based strategy is a capacity-building component that helps educators understand just the fundamentals about uh, the way the brain processes uh, information under duress, uh, how a traumatic stressor can alter the capacity of the brain to effectively process uh, and sort and store information, and and then of course, you know, being able to figure out how those changes to the functioning of the child impact both learning and behavior in, as it manifests in the classroom. But but it's it's interesting that the the vehicle that we use to teach about trauma actually is. Uh, essentially introducing learnings about how the brain works that will help an educator um, understand learning. And, you know, if you talk about learning and processing information, you know, the way the brain does that optimally and what gets in the way of that, it's in such an easy thing to then introduce the role of anxiety, fear, and then trauma into the learning process. And a lot of things that teachers see in the classroom start to make sense. And so we have a, a lot of people, actually, when they think about school-based trauma programs, they are thinking kind of along the lines that, all right, if there's a, what do we do if there's a crisis? You know, here's our plan about a crisis. But we actually think that a proactive um, process uh, number one, really prepares the school and the educators uh, in, in the event that there is something that's, you know, acute. But it also helps um, prepare and address some the educators, and it helps educators address some of the pre-existing behavioral and learning issues that may be present in the classroom. So we've, we've actually got a a model that we've been using that has been remarkably successful, actually sort of surprisingly successful, um, in part because it's, I think it's the way our partners in education have helped us learn how to connect with and communicate with, with educators. Mm-hmm. But what we've seen things like in the Columbus public school systems, um, where we have a, basically a five-hour uh, web-based introduction to understanding trauma and the impact of trauma on learning. And we've seen things like uh, elementary schools and middle schools that had several thousand school referrals before they had this little bit of this didactic introduction. The next year, have that cut in half. And... Um, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, it's really a testament to the, the way the teachers take the concepts and then think through the implications. So the, the recognition that it's probably not going to be very regulating for a kid to be reminded that he is uh, violating some behavior contract that they've put together. Uh, and if you know, and that that that, will, that rarely leads to de-escalation. In mm-hmm. fact, 
reminding kids of what they're not doing well frequently leads to an escalation. So we we're learning a lot, and uh, but it's I have to say that the each school is a little bit different, and some schools have really really good support and leadership, and some schools don't. Some schools have an engaged. Uh, community and some schools don't and it's a very complex uh, set of challenges I think trying to engage um, the educational system around this hmm. I'm kind of curious about what what of your experiences been uh, along those lines hmm. Wow okay what are my experiences <laughs> I I have experiences in Texas, and then I have experiences here in Connecticut that are that are still are still growing. Um, my experiences in Texas were, you know, relatively large school systems uh, that worked uh, where the teachers and the administrators, you know, worked very hard to um, to uh, promote their curriculum, you know, to try to get you know, great test scores. And it, it's pretty consistent here too, I think, in that regard when it comes to academics. When I was, I think one thing that's different down down in Texas that was that's compared to up here in Connecticut is that the uh, systems there are are, are are tend to be large school systems, and and when you're when you're that big, then I think that you're better able to um, create teams to respond to crises and be more um, more um, consistent with with the models of um, not responding to your own crisis. You know, you you have one, you know. One of the, a, key, a key practice is if, if a crisis event occurs in your school, you should not be the, the clinician to respond to that. You should be calling other people to help you with mutual aid. And you could do that when your school system is large, but when you only have maybe you know 2,000 kids in your entire town who are in the school system, it's almost impossible to, um, to call for mutual aid. And that's really the case here in Connecticut where the school systems, you know, outside of the urban areas, some of these towns that are, that are in these um, in the area are, are, that surround these urban areas are, are very small, and yet they still run their own school systems. And sometimes they do a beautiful job, but when it comes to being sort of trauma sensitive and and um, being crisis ready, it's much harder, I think, when you've got a very small team. That's my experience, at least. Um, it's it's and it is limited to a degree. Well, it's. It, it, I think that those are really important points, though, that we we uh, always find that the the availability of external resources is really important, mm-hmm. and uh, particularly during an acute event, because when the adults are part of the whole experience, their capacity to process and function effectively is compromised. Mm-hmm. And We've, we've seen this in a lot of high-profile incidents where the, you know, we saw this after 9-11. Uh, I was, for example, in a problem-solving meeting with a bunch of mental health professionals who are based in Washington and New York. And the thinking of the group was almost near hysterical. And it was just, it was, I, I hate to say fascinating, but it was just amazing. I knew these people are very bright, really great people. But in the midst of, right on the heels of that event, they were so embroiled in the, all of it that they weren't thinking in a rational way sometimes. Mm-hmm. 
and I think that that can certainly have seen that happen in uh, a number of other high-profile situations where the, the, the administrators and the teachers and the parents in a community are so overwhelmed that they're, um, they, they're not in a position to be effective leaders. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the number one issue that we see as a problem in any of these complicated high-profile events is that usually if it's uh, uh, the, the people who are given the administrative and regulatory responsibilities to lead, if they're impacted by the event, unfortunately, they're, they're the ones with sort of the power, but they're also the ones that are kind of paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And so there are these inefficiencies in decision-making, and there are these missteps, and there are um, kind of knee-jerk reactions, you know, like everybody has to have a debriefing, and you're like, well, that's probably not exactly what they want or need right now, 24 hours after this event. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, people just, um, it's it's a hard thing, and I'd be curious about your your experiences around the issue of leadership, because um, it, we we haven't we don't have a great solution. I mean, the, the places where we've seen it work well is when the leadership actually invites someone in to take temporary leadership uh, responsibility, and if that's managed in a respectful way, it doesn't feel like the external leader is co-opting anybody. You know, they can essentially scaffold good decision-making for the real administrative uh, folks. But without that, it's kind of a mess. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the model that I learned for cri- for crisis response, I learned it was, was primarily NOVA, National Organization for Victim Assistance, but it was adapted and made to fit pretty well into the systems that I worked with in Texas. But there's a, there's some phenomenal models for crisis response in, in Virginia. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but they've got some state laws and mandates to their schools and for other agencies to practice and prepare. And they have a lot, a lot of interdisciplinary training. I was at one recently um, where there was the room was filled with um, school resource officers, state police, school administrators, and school counselors, psychologists, and social workers. And that's that, that was pretty impressive to be in a room like that where everybody's getting the same training on responding to crises. You know, I think that the observation about everybody kind of having the same point of view and perspective and then also having a little, the co-training opportunity helps people gain some perspective on the challenges that someone else in a different system might have. Um, because one of the f- first things that, that this kind of stuff does is in the beginning there's this unifying impact, right? People are trying to help each other, but over time, as fatigue sets in, then there's this incredible fractionation of you know, divisiveness, mm-hmm. and it helps both processes, um, both this initial coming together and then the, later on splitting, if there's sort of common... Uh, set of concepts that people are trained to, and uh, some 
appreciation of the role and responsibilities of the other people in the, in the, the response team. Because uh, it, you know, I mean, I, I use, you know, I, you can use, for example, Sandy Hook as an example. There, to this day, three years later, there continue to be very strong feelings about, you know, how things went and how things are still going. And I think that um, obviously there are lots of really, really well-intended and very good things that did take place, but there are also a lot of missteps. And uh, there are a number of learnings that I think people in each of these experiences uh, have. And, um, you know, when I think back on the way things were handled 20 years ago with the Waco thing, uh, and there was no federal, we tried to get the federal government to give us any help or support. They didn't, nothing, nothing. And they were actually obstructionist. And even, and the state was actually pretty good. They just basically relinquished responsibility and, uh, it, it which, it was fine. I mean, it, it helped us do some innovative things. Some of what we learned there, we were able to help people apply at Columbine and Oklahoma City, and that what the people in Oklahoma City learned, they were able to sort of share with the broader community. And so, even though each one of these events has a different personality, so to speak, and a different set of challenges, the learnings are accumulating. And um, I do think that globally, these responses uh, are better than they were 20 years ago. But there still are, you know, big glaring gaps in, in between what we have learned and what we're actually able to implement in in different places. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I th- you had commented the leadership was an important piece, so I'm going to kind of continue with that line, if you don't mind, just for a moment. They, sure. there, there's um when I, when I first moved here and I was looking to set up the team, I actually had set had had tried to work on it prior to the shootings. And so I had met with all the superintendents and I was making a lot of phone calls to different state agencies in an effort to make sure that I wasn't stepping on anybody's toes or duplicating a service that already exists. And there's a lot of amazing services in Connecticut, including mobile crisis that, you know, um, that will respond to any kind of a crisis event for a child in the state, whether they're a state resident or not. And I think that only exists in two different states in the nation. So pretty impressive stuff that goes on here. In in that effort to collect information, I I connected with somebody with the um, Connecticut Association of Schools, and I, I learned that um, that since the shootings, that their um, administrators, retired administrators, have rallied together, and they now have their own crisis team. That um, so that if there's a crisis at a school, an administrator needs some relief, or they need some advice, whatever they need administratively, they they'll they'll mobilize an administrator to that school. The person's certified and experienced, and they can either take over the school so that the the current building administrator can handle the crisis, or vice versa, they'll handle the crisis so the building administrator can take care of the school. So it's That's a uh, great idea. yeah, it's a pretty really, pretty impressive yeah. you know framework, and. Um, yeah, I'd like to see that. Them. Is, and I think what what's, what will make it successful is that it is uh, real administrators that are doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things where that kind of model, uh, sort of the, the idea of having sort of external folks take over, it's always easier to kind of relinquish 
or share responsibility with with one of your own, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that in in our experiences, one of the things that we think is reasons our recent model that's focusing on schools has been successful is that it's led by educators. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, we you know at some point there is an appreciation that the sort of the mental health expertise we have is is a positive thing. But ultimately, the, the, the initial connection with the school and the educators is so much easier and more effective if the lead person in that team, when we're beginning to bring this into the school, is an educator. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's, that, that kind of gets helps us form the working relationship. And then as more expertise is needed, then... then they can draw upon different parts of our learning community. But the the way in which they use the learning community and the way in which they listen to the other people in that community is completely dependent upon the fact that there's a really good trusting relationship that's been started with this other lead uh, person who's an educator. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I've given you much background on, on our crisis team. Uh, the crisis team that we formed here, um, like I said, we started it before the shootings, but then we gained qu- uh, quite a bit of traction and momentum after the shootings. And so we actually started meeting formally um, about nine months after the shootings. And um, um, what we, we have representatives from 12 districts right around the Danbury area. And... Um, um, the representatives meet with me once a month and we go over different, uh, um, different issues, but typically, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, it's not me leading the meetings. I just sort of facilitate them when we bring in different speakers, people from the community, um, who have expertise on different areas of crises and they, uh, will come and they will give us some training and, and some, and, um, uh, knowledge from their own experience and their own, um, 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 a field of expertise. So uh, the, the meetings, uh, t- t- the topics will vary, but they're always on something that focuses on student crises. And um, people are pretty passionate about it. I, f- I feel like our meetings have always been very well attended and very, people tend to look forward to them. At least I do as well. We had one this morning that was on, you know, on, on working with, uh, with the GLBT uh, population because that seems to be a growing uh, population in schools and it can sometimes lead to crisis or stressful situations and bullying at school. So we had someone come in and talk about that. And so those are the kinds of things that we do. In addition to exercising, we'll have somebody who comes in and who gives tabletop exercises. And our next meeting, we'll, we'll bring your administrator with you and we'll, we'll do tabletop exercises and practice for, for specific crisis events. And we do that monthly because that's part of the idea of, of getting to know each other and building that relationship. And it's also vetting vetting the membership too. So I know the person who's going to come to my crises, versus having a stranger come. Interesting. So, since you guys just set this up, have there been um, events that you've been able to uh, see how this works in action? Yeah, it's interesting because initially I told the team, you know, we're not going to respond until we have MOUs, Memorandum of Understanding, you know, among the districts, but. Um, um, shortly, about a few months after we were practicing, um, we had our first crisis event, and the the school representative said, "This is really huge. 
you know, I don't think we need state agencies, but our team could really handle this and we could really use your help. So I just sort of mobilized our group. I said, hey, can we get some folks over here to help the school? And, uh, and we did. And so um, our helpers went and helped out at, their, at, at, at a particular campus. And primarily it was to relieve the helpers at that campus to go and work with students at a, at a different campus. So it was, um, I don't really want to get into the details, but it was a systemic event that affected this entire small school district. And our helpers really helped them to get back on their feet again. And, uh, and it was, and there was certainly, it wasn't a perfect situation, but it really, I think overall it was benefit to the school system. And we've had several since then where they've asked us to be on standby. And then we had another one this fall where there was a student death and, and they, and we did mobilize for that one too. So we're not as active as I think we potentially could be, but we're about as active as, as uh, we are active and we're, we're ready to go. It's interesting that our original experience with all of this uh, came because we, it, it, about, oh gosh, that's about 30 years ago now, we had started look, looking at the characteristics of children that we were thinking uh, were, were essentially demonstrating post-traumatic stress disorder. And these were kids that were brought into a traditional mental health clinic setting after there were profound externalizing symptoms. So, you know, we knew we had a sampling bias. And so I, I said it would be really interesting to sort of track people after a traumatic event and see how things evolve. So our idea was to develop a crisis intervention team that would respond to these uh, events and, and we were thinking they would be, you know, relatively small things. You know, a, a, a house fire, um, a car accident with multiple kids, maybe a natural disaster that destroyed, you know, like a tornado or something. And so we we put together this multidisciplinary team, um, and this is the first team was comprised of people from the VA in Houston and. Texas Children's and the Baylor College of Medicine Department of Psychiatry, and and then Waco happened, mm-hmm. and so we we had a team that was we'd already picked psychometrics to track people, and um, we'd already done a little bit of training for some of the folks. So we we actually had a team that was um, ready to go and had anticipated a number of things that we should be doing in the case of some sort of event. We didn't, no, we never really anticipated something that big, but um, <laughs> it, it does help, you know, when you actually have anticipated and have a, have a group put together. And it, it was a, we, we learned a lot from that experience, and we, we continue to do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm, uh, clearly I'm you're preaching to the choir. I'm, I'm a big advocate of that, you know, having a team being ready for the big events, and when the small events come along, they'll be much easier. Well, it's, it's interesting. We tried to get <clears throat> the federal, you know, we tried to get, you know, this is way, way, way before there was a National Center for Child Traumatic Stress. And um, we tried to get NIH and SAMHSA. It, it was called like 10 different government agencies and said, listen, you know, this is really important for both service delivery and it's important to learn about, you know, potential research issues. And nobody was interested. It was like, not, nah, nah, hmm. nah, we're not interested. Like, okay. 
we just went and did it on our own. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a good learning experience. Now, Dr. Perry, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of divert back to the protocol that we, I had sent you. Just some basic questions on school crisis response, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, so, um, I'm gonna jump down to to my fourth question. Um, can you identify any any clinical errors? You know, some things that that people do that um, that aren't as productive when they respond to crises. So what can what should we keep in mind when we're protecting? And, and responding to, to crises at schools? Well, I think the most important thing really is to recognize that different people will successfully adapt to a traumatic experience using different uh, adaptive styles. You know, some kids will want to talk about what they saw and will actually be regulated and, and they'll have some positive therapeutic benefit from talking with someone, and some kids won't. And some kids are more motor in the way they regulate themselves, and some kids are more internalizing. They'll use dissociation. So there's just a, a wide range of adaptive responses, and, the, and there is no one-size-fits-all um, intervention that should be pushed on any kid or any teacher or, or who's you're trying to help. Now, one of the things that I think is really powerful about the therapeutic process is that when you give people uh, a sense of uh, that they're in a safe interaction, they're either in a safe place, they're physically safe, they're relationally safe, then there will be this process by which they will um, rework the event. And, and what we know about healing from trauma is that in some way, shape, or form, whether it's drawing or thinking or reading about it or talking about it or doing art about it, revisiting the experience and reactivating your stress response system in moderate, controllable ways is what helps people heal. Mm-hmm. And, and what a dose of therapeutic healing is for one child might be an overwhelming dose for another child. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea is, is if, as a helper, you kind of want to do two things. The first thing is that you want to let the child or the person you're working with know that you're not afraid to hold whatever the horrible stuff is, that you're, you know, you can talk about it and you can tolerate hearing about it. Mm-hmm. And, and then after you've sort of done that and invited them when they want, if they want, how they want to, you know, talk about this or hang out with me or take a walk or whatever you want to do, then you just have to let give them elements of control. Let Let them... Uh, decide when and how they're going to talk with you about it. Mm-hmm. And, and and I know that that's kind of counter to some of the existing protocols where people have, you know, I know the Jeff Mitchell protocol where there is this structured process, which, you know, for some people can be beneficial, but for other people they find it quite intrusive and the outcome data is not very good. 
mm-hmm. when you force people to do that CISD stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I do think it's one of the tools that can be in a good toolkit. Right, right. Um, the, but the, 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 what I find time and time again is that if you have uh, people that have a really pretty good supportive family, pretty good supportive uh, community of faith, pretty good supportive set of school supports, that they will tend to use those pre-existing anchors uh, to do this sort of self-directed healing process. Mm -hmm. And and again, so the, the only real big mistake I see is when people sort of take the control of the healing process away from the client mm-hmm. and and try to force it in a certain direction. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like uh, what you're saying is is it is it crises and and trauma or sort of idiosyncratic. You know, it's different for me and it's different from you and different for other, everybody else. And and our approaches for healing, our approach, or at least our repro- our approaches to respond, can't be rigid. You know, they, whatever approach you use, whatever model that you use, you've got to be sure that it matches with what what the client or uh, uh, what the victim has is is, is ready to, to to experience. Exactly, and 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 having a little flexibility, it's always helpful to have a couple of more than one tool in your toolkit, mm-hmm. and 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 being attuned to the person you're interacting with and then flexible in the way you respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if you do that, you'll usually be pretty, in pretty good shape. And, and again, just remember, the truth is we all make mistakes. I mean, mm-hmm. we're all, the very nature of human interaction is that there are missteps right. and, re- and repair. Missteps and repair. And, you know, that's... That... The degree to which you are able to quickly repair a misstep is kind of connected to how attuned you are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you just um, sort of keep some of those principles in mind, most people, the fact that you're present and you want to help, that in and of itself is a very powerful, positive thing. Great. Thanks for the words of wisdom. That's that's going to be helpful for listeners, I'm sure. But Dr. Parrott, I'd like to wind down now. I'd like to kind of end with this question. Um, what do you see for the future when it comes to school safety and, and crisis response? Do you see it changing drastically? You talked earlier about about making recommendations before, but they weren't heard. Where do you think we're going in the future? Well, I, I think what's going to happen is that a lot of the things that we're now learning in you know, like we'll, you and I will go into a school and we'll say, hey, you know, these are some really important things that you should take into consideration when you're creating the school environment. And here's some important things that the teachers should know. And so we're, we are adding on these learnings after someone's become a teacher and after someone has developed uh, sort of the school programming and policy. And so I think in the future, where we're going to be in 10 years, I hope, is that while people are in schools of education and while people are learning to become principals and administer, you know, school settings, that a lot of these core concepts will become part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And so rather than kind of being an add-on, it will become, it, these concepts will be integral to the, the, the experience of an educator, and it won't be something that they will um, find oh, too overwhelming. Uh, and, and essentially, I think what they're going to see is the more you understand about human behavior under duress and under threat, the better you're going to be able to teach. Mm-hmm. And because a lot, like I said, the same concepts that help you understand trauma actually help you understand how to create an optimal learning environment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so you can teach these concepts in ways that they really help you become a better educator uh, and become a person who's more capable of uh, both dealing with and uh, getting through crises. Right, interesting. You know, I always talk about you know our our different resources out in the community breaking down silos. Like we should be collaborating, working together. Uh, but my my intuition, my, I sort of suspect that at, at a lot of universities and schools of education, that uh, specialists continue to operate in their own silos. You know, there's not probably a lot of interdisciplinary training from psychology and counseling and social work overlapping with with um, school leadership and, and, uh, and, and teacher education. And I think you're absolutely right. And, and I think one of the things that happens is the further away you get from real-life practice, um, the easier it is to maintain your silo. Mm-hmm. Because the currency for success in an academic setting is that you're successful in your little silo. Mm-hmm. You publish in your little journals, you go to your little meetings, Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's kind of an academic disincentive to be connected to and engaged with another discipline. Right. Um, and so pa- over, that's ultimately going to have to change. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but that, those kinds of changes take a long time. Right. But there are places that have interdisciplinary programs that are uh, kind of university-wide that are focusing on trauma. There's a couple of universities that we're uh, starting to talk with partners, um, uh, like at Ohio State, they've had a number of interesting conversations about um, integrating a lot of this core content across their multiple professional schools, you know, education, law, mental health. Mm -hmm. Uh, There have been discussions at some smaller schools that uh, create caseworkers and educators that, hey, you know, we really should have a track where people learn about trauma. and so that everybody's on the same page. And it's, there's some really cool stuff going on out there. It's just for those uh, of us who are getting older, <laughs> it's, we may not see all of the good changes happen before we're uh, set out to pasture. Yeah, I, like, I love the optimistic viewpoint, though. <laughs> I am optimistic. It's, it helps. <laughs> Hey, well, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I mean, it was, I feel like that our time just flew so quickly, but um, I, I think that it was just a nugget of, of, uh, of great knowledge that listeners will be able to benefit from. So I appreciate your time today. My pleasure, and keep up the good work. I, uh, I think what you guys are doing is really good, and you will uh, end up teaching a lot of people uh, from both your successes and your little missteps. And it, <laughs> just let me end by saying this. I hope you write some of this stuff up and so you can share in a more systematic way 
what you all have been learning because it really is of high value. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope to do so. Great. All right. Thanks very much. Thanks. Have a great, great evening. Bye-bye.